0: Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1921, the 25th season of the VFL. The fallout from the First World War continued into 1921. Australia gained the responsibility for administering the territory of New Guinea, after Germany was forced to relinquish it. A few footballers have made it to the league level, from Papua New Guinea, Mal Michael who won three premierships with Brisbane being the most successful. 1921 was also a time for discussion on the correct way to observe Anzac Day. With the war and its impact still fresh in people's minds, the way to mark the day was evolving. At this point it was not yet a public holiday in Victoria, although it was a federal holiday. Adding to the possible confusion was the fact that in 1921 The Victorian Labor Day holiday would fall on Monday 25th of April. An article in the Argus in February was strongly of the opinion that Anzac Day should be for solemn observance. If football and races were allowed, it would just become another holiday. Football would in time be played on Anzac Day and be a source of continuing tension with organisations like the RSL, until Kevin Sheedy came up with the concept of a single Anzac Day match between Essendon and Collingwood. Ironic, given that Essendon stood down for much of World War One. But we'll explore that further in an episode far into the future. One other important development in 1921 was the discovery of insulin at the University of Toronto. Diabetes had been recognised as a disease for over 3,000 years, with the discovery of insulin Work on treatments for diabetes began with successful results as early as 1922. There have been many footballers with diabetes play at the highest level, thanks in part to ready access to insulin. And on a domestic level, the pop-up toaster was patented in America in 1921. Sliced bread would come a few years later. On football matters, Essendon was starting the process of looking for a new home with the loss of the East Melbourne ground, scheduled for 1922. The club had been playing there for about 40 years, choosing the location when they joined the VFA as there were no enclosed grounds in Essendon. They had a year to sort things out and in February there was already discussion in the press about their options. Essendon City Council were keen to have the club play on a local ground, minutes from the Essendon train station, now serviced by speedy electric trains. There were also rumours of a merger with a VFA club to gain access to their ground. But which one? Even the Camberwell football ground was supposed to be on offer, which would have put the team even further from the suburb that they were named after. In April, the Argus made it clear that Essendon were looking to use North Melbourne's ground at Arden Street. Given North Melbourne were one of the leading VFA teams, this was not going to be welcomed by all. By June, the prospect of Essendon moving to Arden Street and merging with North Melbourne was openly discussed in the press. Many North supporters had been frustrated that their club, one of the pioneers of the game, had been blocked from joining the league and welcomed the option of joining forces with Essendon if this would get them into the premier competition, albeit as North taking over Essendon. By late June, the City Council agreed that Essendon could have the Arden Street ground, despite a letter from the Essendon City Council asking that the decision be deferred so as they could finalise their offer. The VFA were not happy and declared they would not take the decision lying down. While North Melbourne said that there was no truth in the rumour that they were contemplating a merger with Essendon, nor could they say that they would reject such a proposal. Things began to get messy after the Melbourne City Council's decision to allow Essendon access to Arden Street. On Saturday, July 2nd, it was reported that North Melbourne were resigning from the VFA. Their game with Williamstown was cancelled and a flurry of player applications for clearances was received. The President of North Melbourne, Brady Devaney, openly stated that North Melbourne has for years been anxious to get into the league and this is the only way. It seems their risky strategy was to get a critical mass of players to Essendon, and with many of their members being based in or around North Melbourne, they would be the powerful partner in a merger. There were two problems. Essendon were not yet on board with a merger, and the VFA would fight tooth and nail to keep control of the strategically placed Arden Street ground. At this time in Melbourne's development, Arden Street was a prime venue, with access to a large population north of the city, serviced by public transport, and with one of the best playing surfaces in the city. The VFA appealed to the State Government, and in August the Minister for Lands vetoed the Council's decision. In October things were still unclear. The Herald reported several possibilities, ranging from Essendon disbanding, to the potential for Essendon to share Victoria Park with the Magpies, a pair of co-tenants that would have made for some interesting history if that scenario had unfolded. Despite the opposition of the Essendon VFA club, Essendon quickly made the decision to go with the Essendon Recreation Reserve, better known to all as Windy Hill. Essendon had a club and a ground. North Melbourne had no club to play on its now controversial ground. By the end of the year, North had reformed and was admitted back in the VFA, although with an entirely new committee and any player that had transferred to a VFL club was banned. The VFA had won this battle, but we know that North would eventually make their way to the VFL, but that is for a future episode. The other fallout was that the Essendon City VFA club, having lost the use of Windy Hill, decided that they would merge with North Melbourne after presenting their two Premiership Cups to the Essendon City Council. So North did get to merge with Essendon, but not the VFL club that they were targeting. Another big news item in the pre-season was the move of Roy Cazaley, after 99 games with St Kilda, to South Melbourne. He had played in a grand final in his third season, but the club had not been successful, and the divisions between players and committee must have made it a difficult time. Robert Allen's book, Cazalie, tells the story of how he had tried unsuccessfully to move to Carlton, the club he had supported as a child, several times across the years. But when St Kilda finally released him, South Melbourne claimed him because he lived in their district. He would have success at South Melbourne, but in 1921, the now immortal phrase, up there Kazaley, was born. Fred Fleeter, known as Skeeter, played in the ruck alongside Roy Kazaley. He was the one that coined the phrase, yelling, Up there Kazaley, to encourage him to fly to take one of his renowned high marks. Some South supporters at a game, early in the season, overheard the call and took it up themselves. Before long, it was synonymous with Roy Kazaley, the crowd encouraging him as he flew high above the pack. The call took on a life of its own, becoming a battle cry in World War II. The playwright, Ray Lawler, included it in his play The Summer of the Seventeenth Doll, which, as a staple of Year 12 English for many years, kept the call going in some way. And then, in 1979, Mike Brady turned it into a TV theme for Channel 7, and then a massive single, which is still rolled out every year at grand final time. A real piece of grand final history that can be traced back to 1921. One change that was implemented in 1921 is still with us today. For the first time, boundary umpires were required to return the ball to the centre after a goal. The season kicked off on Saturday, May 7th. The Herald's preview captured the pent-up excitement, predicting 80,000 people to go to the various games. It was a fine day and Richmond unfurled their premiership flag at Punt Road while hosting Carlton. When the Tigers first entered the league, Carlton was the team they could not beat for 10 years. Now they were the reigning premiers. But, sadly for the Tigers, it was the Blues adding another win to a lopsided count between the two clubs after a fast game between two clubs favoured to do well this season. Fitzroy had finished the 1920 home and away season second on the ladder, having just lost two games. But they also lost their opening game to Collingwood. South Melbourne hosted St Kilda and the Saints scored six goals straight in the first quarter to South Melbourne's five goals won, which might have indicated some effective goal-kicking practice in the pre-season. But in the end, South would win by one point, with Roy Cazaley kicking two goals against his old club. Melbourne and Essendon had the close result for the day. Essendon players left the field disappointed, as the scoreboard showed them two points behind. However, after the game, the goal umpires confirmed the correct score was a draw. Good news for Essendon, but disappointment for Melbourne. It was not the last tied result for the season. 1921 would see a record number of close results, with five draws and four one point games. The treatment of umpires came into focus after round three. During the previous season, the umpires had firmly requested that the league provide them with appropriate protection from the crowds. After being abused and threatened by Fitzroy supporters after a game against Richmond, umpire Norden, a 15-year veteran with three grand finals to his name and the president of the umpires association, declared he had had enough. The league, however, seemed to be more focused on the umpires' performance. Before round four, they held a special meeting and urged uniformity in interpreting the holding the man rule, a call that continues in games today. Despite the many close results, the top four teams after round four would go on to be the top four teams at the end of the season. Fitzroy would not be amongst the leaders. In a stunning decline from nineteen twenty, they would not win a game until round eight. On the King's birthday weekend in June, there was yet another draw. And again, the scoreboard was showing the wrong result and Melbourne were involved, just as they had been in the opening game of the season when they thought they had a win against Essendon. But this time, they were shown as a point behind St Kilda and had the relief of a draw confirmed by the goal umpires after the game. And it was St Kilda finding out that their win was reduced to a draw. St Kilda made a protest to the league about the result, but it was dismissed and the match remained a draw. In June, there was another example of generosity from the VFL to a competing football code that would not be seen in modern times. In 1920, the curtain raiser for the interstate game between Victoria and South Australia was a soccer game. This year, before the Melbourne Fitzroy game at the MCG, the visiting South African rugby union team took on a Victorian representative side. The South Africans won 51-0 51 nil in front of a curious crowd looking to give the South Africans a sporting welcome. Geelong were moving with the Times in July when they announced they would install a hot water system and a hot water plunge bath, luxuries that previous generations of Geelong and visiting teams had done without. In news that saddened and shocked Melbourne, Carlton's Rover Lyle Downs collapsed and died of a heart attack after training on Thursday, the 7th of July. He was just 24. Two years earlier, he had collapsed during a game and was warned by a doctor that his heart was weak and that he should stop playing football. Advice, sadly, ignored. The following Saturday was already expected to be one of the biggest games of the season. Carlton, undefeated and on top of the ladder, hosting third place Richmond. Flags flew at half mast, and players from both clubs wore black armbands. Carlton honoured their teammate and won easily by 51 points. The following week, St Kilda achieved another one of their unique records when they hosted Fitzroy at the Junction Oval. In the opening round, the Saints had kicked six goals straight in the first quarter, on their way to a respectable 10 goal six for the game, a score that might have given supporters hope that their team had benefited from goal-kicking practice. Sadly, any benefit was long gone by round 11. In four quarters of football and 18 scoring shots, St Kilda could not manage one accurate kick. Their score of zero goals, 18 behinds, was all the more painful because Fitzroy only had 14 scoring shots but managed to kick six goals and win by 26 points. Perhaps not as bad as their 1899 game against Geelong, when they only managed a single behind for the entire game, but in some ways even more frustrating given that they had 18 shots at goal. Making things even worse for Saints supporters were some of the match reports that said St Kilda were the better team, except for their kicking at goal. Things did not get much better for the Saints the following week when they took on Carlton, In an era of low-scoring games, the Blues kicked a club record of 22 goals, 10 behinds, to beat the Saints by nearly 100 points. Horrie Clover kicked 13 goals from centre-half forward in a dominant performance. Games went on hold during August due to the Interstate Carnival, which was held in Western Australia for the first time. Given the cost and logistics involved in travelling to Perth, only Western Australia, South Australia and Victoria participated. Travelling to Western Australia required a long, monotonous train journey with many stops at wayside stations where the Victorian and South Australian teams got off the train for some kicking practice. It is a scene worth picturing. The best footballers from two states surrounded by the vastness of the Nullarbor Plain kicking footballs as they waited for a train to pass. Western Australia beat Victoria after a dramatic final moment in their game. Dick Lee had marked within scoring distance, a goal would win the game and possibly the championship. As he prepared his place kick, he decided to play on. Nipper Truscott tackled him and the final bell sounded, giving victory to the home team. Western Australia then beat South Australia to take out the championship on home soil, a popular result in the West. The season resumed for round 14 after two weekends without football. Carlton were on top of the ladder, followed by Richmond, Geelong and Collingwood. South and Fitzroy were a game and a half behind fourth spot, but they were not able to make up the difference in the last five rounds. On the last Saturday in August, the Herald had a long profile piece on Richmond's star defender, Max Heslop. Turned down by both Collingwood and Melbourne, the Swan Hill native was making his name known at half-back for the Tigers, and on several occasions for the Victorian state team. He will prove useful in the finals. Despite the growing crowds at VFL Games and the enthusiasm of the spectators, not everyone in Melbourne was as positive about football. Speaking at an event at the Melbourne Town Hall to welcome athletes for the cross-country championships, Dr Kent Hughes, a leading medical man of the city and a runner-up in the World Half-Mile Championships in 1888, said a few words that made it to the papers. To quote the good doctor, I think that league football is one of the most pernicious influences we have. It encourages men to leave good billets, to become loafers and pony race hangers-ons. Some legislation should be instituted to stop the frightful waste of manhood caused by league football. He was also against marathon races and thought a distance of 10 miles was too far. I think we can conclude he did not bring the city around to his point of view. Dr Hughes wasn't a huge supporter of Sport for Women either, so you can assume he would have been horrified at the sight of women playing football on the Junction Oval in August. Thousands of men, though, were there to watch the Fleetwoods take on the Chortleys, two teams named after women's soccer clubs in England. The game was delayed as several of the Chortley players had to withdraw at the last minute. They were Defence Department employees and, sadly, had been threatened with dismissal if they played. A decision that was derided as not playing the game. Another player was told she would not be welcome home that night if she played. The captain of the Fleetwoods shared some of her team with the Chortleys and a -a 13-a-side game was played. The standard was not high. The ball was kicked along the ground more than picked up. There were a few whacks between players and kicks in the shin when the ball was missed, but also a lot of laughter at the enjoyment of the experience. It was suggested in one review that walking boots with high heels and pointed toes were not the best option for football, but there were probably not many volunteering to share their boots with the women. The captain of the Fleetwoods, Miss Halliday, advised the press that they would be playing more games in the coming weeks in Yarraville, Port Melbourne and for the soldiers recovering from tuberculosis at Mont Park Hospital. There are some photos of the game at the grandfinalhistory.com.au website if you are interested. The final round of the 1921 season had no impact on the top four, but it did see the last game of VFL football played at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground. As discussed earlier, the reclaiming of the ground by the government for the railway yards had seen all sorts of complications as Essendon looked for a new ground and North Melbourne tried to find a pathway into the VFL. The last game at the ground was Essendon hosting St Kilda And after a season of close results, it was the Saints with a two-point win that had left Essendon, the wooden spooners, for the third time in the VFL. Leading into the finals was the announcement that the league had raised the entry price. A spot in the outer went from one shilling to one shilling and sixpence, about a ten cent increase in today's money. And for a seat in the grandstand, people had to pay three shillings and sixpence, which would be about $3.90 in today's money which was about 50 cents more than the previous year. The thinking behind the price increase was an attempt to control the size of the crowds that had been seen in 1920. Several finals had crowds so big that people inside the ground could not see the match, while others who got to the ground were not able to get in. The finals were to start on Saturday 24th of September with the first semi semi-final between second place Richmond taking on fourth place Geelong. The following week Carlton would play old rivals Collingwood and, as Carlton had topped the ladder, they had the right of challenge in their pocket if they needed it. Geelong had made the finals for the first time in seven years. They had been disappointing in 1920, but reforms this season had helped them move further up the ladder. Some of these reforms included having the youngest team in the league, with seven players under 21. The abolishment of night training, replaced with afternoon practice, and banning smoking in the change rooms and on the footballers' carriages on their special trains to Melbourne. In the home and away season, both Richmond and Geelong had won at their home grounds. However, the Tigers were favoured to win the game. 41,000 people were at the game, slightly more than the 1920s first semi-final, despite the many complaints about the increase in price and threats by some letter writers to the papers that they would be attending the VFA instead. The Herald described the game as being played in excellent spirit, with Richmond being just too good. Perhaps Geelong's young team were a little overawed with nerves, whereas Richmond had played on this stage in the two previous seasons. Geelong showed moments of brilliance, but Richmond had consistent good play, getting the ball from the wings to centre forward, where there was always someone ready to take it on. Geelong led at the first break, but after that, it was largely one way. The Pivotonians might have been wearing new jumpers for the big occasion, but they were doing more chasing and defending rather than controlling the game. The longer the game went on, the further ahead the Tigers moved. They were in terrific finals form. The final scores were Richmond 6 the final scores were Richmond 16 goals 19, 115 to Geelong 6 goals 8, 54. Geelong would take the train back home, not smoking and not planning on any more football for this season. The second semi-final between Carlton and Collingwood was on Saturday the 1st of October. Carlton had beaten the Magpies twice this season, most recently in the last game of the home and away season. The Blues went into the game as favourites. Only 37,000 people came to this game, as compared to the 62,000 at the second semi-final a year ago. However, it is worth noting that that crowd was swollen by spectators that had planned to go to the VFA final at East Melbourne until it was postponed due to the rain. But perhaps the increased prices were also having an impact. The game was a one-sided affair for the first two quarters, Carlton showing their superiority with better passing, better marking and better accuracy in front of goal. It put the Blues into a dominant position at the long break, 5 goals 6-36 to Collingwood on just 1-goal 7-13. The Magpie supporters would have been feeling quite down before the third quarter, but then they might have begun to hope as the game took an unexpected turn. The goals that were missing in the first half opened up. Passes began to land on the intended target's chest. Defenders were able to repel some of the Blues' forward moves. After being down for the count, the Magpies were just four points behind Carlton. But then the Blues supporters had something to yell for as another goal came their way. But before they could get comfortable, Dick Lee was making the game his own, in the way the champions do during finals, and the Magpies hit the front by one point. They'd used up a lot of energy to get back in front, but surely they had the momentum to take the game now. However, Carlton was not to be outdone, and when the timekeeper rang and rang and then rang the bell again to end the thrilling quarter, the scoreboard showed Carlton had edged a little further in front, 7-7, 49, to Collingwood. 6 goals nine forty-five. After a first half of terrible kicking in the forward line, the Magpies had scored 5 goals 2 in the quarter to give themselves a chance of knocking the top team off. But the last quarter saw the Blues finish just a bit stronger, kicking two goals to Collingwood's single to take the semi-final by 13 points. It had been a game of two halves, but Collingwood had let the Blues get too far in front and were not able to compete the miracle comeback their season was over. Carlton would take on Richmond in the final, one win from being premiers in 1921. But before we get to that, we should note how supporters have always used the latest technology to keep up to date with their sporting heroes. Today's fans can follow their players using the latest social media apps on their smartphones. In 1921, it was a small boy wandering onto the MCG at three quarter time to take pictures of his heroes with his box brownie camera. The footballers were happy to be snapped and the lad had the time of his life even snapping some pictures of the umpires, some great photos to share with his mates, even if he would have to wait until the film was processed and the pictures printed. Not the instant share that we can do these days. The final was scheduled for Saturday 8th of October. If the Blues won they would be premiers. If the Tigers triumphed it would mean a grand final match as ladder leaders Carlton had the right of challenge. Richmond would take an unchanged team into the final after a week's rest. Carlton had two changes to the team. Horry Clover had kicked four goals in the second semi-final against Collingwood, but twisted his ankle and could not play. Although only in his second season, his skill and agility in the forward line would be a big loss for the Blues. croft Mackenzie was also unable to front up and into the team came Perth Staken, who had played most of the season, and Eric Bickford, who had missed the second semi, but had played most of the second half of the season. The Herald's Friday preview went as far as saying the Blues would not win without Clover. But history favoured Carlton. Since joining the league in 1908, Richmond had played Carlton 33 times for 30 losses. But would history be playing when the teams took to the field? 43,000 people were at the MCG for the game. Well down on the 57000 for the final in 1920, so the price rise was helping to solve the overcrowding problem, but perhaps a little too well. While the two semi semi-finals had been disappointing for many spectators, being relatively one-sided affairs, the final was a close-fought match and become one of the most unusual games of football ever played at the MCG. It was truly a game of two halves. In the first two quarters, it was a dashing game, Full of bumps, but with the Tigers having the edge. Their accuracy was one key advantage in what was a do-or-die game for them. They had the wind in the first quarter and took full advantage to kick four goals two to the Blues, one goal four. One incident stood out for many in the first quarter. There was a confrontation between Richmond's Donald Don and Carlton's Jack Greenhill. Don was seen walking away from the incident, blowing on his knuckles. Richmond kicked the first goal of the second quarter, but after that the ball spent more time in Carlton's forward line. But the pressure of Richmond's defence meant that the Blues were taking hurried shots at goal, resulting in a string of four behinds. It was not until a free kick was awarded to Per Staken in the goal square that Carlton got their second goal, just as the bell rang to end the first half. The scores had Richmond in front by 13 points. 5 goals 5 to Carlton on 2 goals 10. The players went in for a rest. The supporters were entertained by a band playing A Perfect Day. But the skies opened and the day became far from perfect. Hail, the size of pigeon eggs, as described in the papers, was blanketing the surface and pelting anyone without shelter. Umbrellas were shredded. People looked for cover wherever they could get it, surging into bars if they could. In 1920, the members' stand was invaded because the crowds in the outer were so large. Now, people in the open looked at the members' grandstand across the ground and decided they needed shelter now. Many jumped the fence and ran, slipped and slid across the ice. There were falls and some people kept sliding where they fell. They took up their places in the members, soaked but out of the rain that continued to tumble down. As the afternoon wore on, a bank of steam was seen to rise from the sodden spectators. In the city, buildings were inundated, skylights smashed, and the streets took on an appearance of rivers. Outside St Paul's Cathedral, the ice was a foot deep, burying the road and the tram tracks. At the VFA final in East Melbourne, the game was abandoned and 10,000 people left the ground. The VFL was clearly a harder taskmaster than and Richmond and Carlton players had to return to the ground to play on an ice rink, which then became a lake in the pouring rain, while lightning flashed overhead. It would be a different game to what had gone before. Carlton adapted to the aquatic conditions, and soon the scores were level. At the end of the quarter, Carlton's Charlie Fisher had a long shot after the bell had rung, too far out to reach the goals. His kick landed in front of a pack of Richmond players, who did not bother to intercept it, and it bounced and rolled and then slid through the big sticks and was awarded a goal. The backmen looked at each other with surprise, clearly being under the mistaken belief that the ball was dead once it hit the ground. But the rules are clear that the ball is not dead until it is touched. The three-quarter time scores had Carlton up by three points. If they could maintain the lead, they would be Premier's. But Richmond would take the lead and hold on to it. Players slid around the ground, often to laughter from the crowd. The ball slipped through hands, and skilled play was replaced by determined efforts by both teams. It had been an extraordinary game on an extraordinary afternoon, and the Tigers had won by eight points. Carlton's chance of winning the Premiership in one game, undone perhaps by their inaccuracy in front of goal, in very trying conditions. Final scores, Richmond, 10 goals, 7, 67. Carlton, 7 goals, 17 behinds, 59 points. As the players left the ground, a bunch of Carlton supporters, as described by the age, attacked Donald Don, clearly unhappy after the earlier incident with Jack Greenhill. Other Richmond players went to assist Donald Don, and there were fears of a significant disturbance, which was happily averted. But there was no report submitted by the umpire, who may not have seen the original incident. The grand final was held on October 15, one of the later dates for a grand final, and also clashing with the Caulfield Cup. A crowd of over 43,000 were at the MCG, down from the 54,000 in 1920. The outer was tightly crammed, but there was more room in the grandstand where the price rise had had a bigger impact. The umpire was Jack McMurray Sr, his first of five grand finals. If you're wondering about Jack Elder, we will see him in one more grand final, but that's for another episode. Jack McMurray had been a VFA umpire between 1913 to 1915, but when the VFA went into recess, he moved across to the VFL, umpiring his first match in 1917. His VFL career spanned 20 seasons, and he was the first umpire officiate at 300 games. He retired after 305 games at the age of 47. Running the boundary was former South Melbourne captain and dual premiership winner Vic Belcher. He would join Collingwood's Lardy Tullock as one of the two men to have won a premiership and umpired a premiership game, although Lardy was the field umpire in 1907. Richmond's captain coach was Dan Minogue following up from a successful 1920 season when he had joined the Tigers after returning from the war and not returning to Collingwood. He would be on the hunt for Richmond's second premiership. Carlton's captain was Gordon Green, a rover, originally from Yarrawonga, who was brought down to the Blues by former skipper Jim Flynn in 1911. He made the Victorian team in 1913 and played in Carlton's back-to-back premierships in 1914 and 15. He then signed up for the Army, and was 29 in the 1919 season when he made his return, playing in the forward line before shifting to the centre after taking the captaincy over from Rod McGregor. The grand final would be his last game for the Blues before he moved back to the country, having played 92 games across 10 war-interrupted years, scoring 85 goals. The Blues coach was Norm Clark, who had coached Richmond to runners-up in 1919, before returning to Carlton in 1920. Horry Clover was returning for Carlton, wearing a special boot designed to relieve the strain on his ankle. Richmond would have the same team as they had had for the semi and for the final. The Curtain-Raiser was the Junior League Grand Final between Essendon and Minor Premiers Collingwood, making up, perhaps in a small way, for the seniors, who had won the Wooden Spoon, and the club who had lost its ground, it was Essendon winning in a close and exciting game, 10 goals 9, 69, to Collingwood's 8 goals 13, 61. Kickero in the Herald tipped the Blues, but the general public was behind the Tigers. There was a huge cheer from the crowd when they entered the ground. The Tigers had the wind in the first quarter, and were the stronger team initially, but as the quarter went on, Carlton played themselves into the game. Clovers high-marking, showed what the Blues had missed out on the week before, while Richmond continued to focus on their passing game. The rain continued to fall in the quarter, making the ball slippery, and the ground, which was still showing the effects of last week's soaking, also made attacking football difficult. At quarter time, it was the Blues with the advantage, 2 goals 2-14, to the Tigers on 1 goal 2-8. The second quarter saw Richmond again with the early attacks into their forward line, but they were not able to put the score on the board. Then Carlton moved forward with Clover, passing to Bert Borromeo, who got the Blues' third goal to put them in a strong position on a wet day. Both teams were working hard, and in a strenuous game, there were a few blows landed. Umpire McMurray could be heard telling the players to keep those elbows down. Richmond's passing game had fallen away, and they had not kicked a goal in the second quarter, giving Carlton a position of strength in a low-scoring game. The half time break saw the Blues leading three goals, four, twenty two, to Richmond on one goal, three, nine. The long break must have been more refreshing for the Tigers because right from the start of the third quarter, they were into attack. Dan Minogue passed to Mel Morris, who kicked onto George Bayliss, who goaled without a Carlton player touching the ball. After missing the 1920 Premiership through illness, Bayliss was keen to make an impact in this game. And make an impact he did because halfway through the third quarter, he scored his second goal to get Richmond within a point. It was game on, and the crowd knew it. Carlton's rover, Stuart McLaughie, drew the crowd's displeasure when he was penalised for holding the ball in front of goal. Clearly unhappy about the decision, he hurled the ball over the fence. A 50-metre penalty in the modern game. Just some boos from Richmond supporters in 1921. The bell for three-quarter time saw the Blues in front by just two points. Three goals six to Richmond on three goals four. It had been a long season, starting in the beginning of May, and now on the 15th of October, one final quarter would decide the Premiership. The Blues moved into their forward line first, but Richmond's Barney Herbert was pushed in the back and he was able to clear the ball with a free kick. The ball moved into Richmond's forward line and Hugh James, eluding three Carlton defenders, kicked the goal that put the Tigers in front for the first time in the game. The roar from their supporters shook the stand. Carlton moved into attack and Vic Thorpe, who had been a rock at fullback all day, dropped a simple mark and the Blues got a point closer. Just a point, but every score was so important in this tight game. Then a runner play by the Tigers, passing the ball cleanly under pressure, got the ball to George Bayliss, who had stamped his influence in the second half with two critical goals. But this time, his shot missed, and a scramble developed in front of goals. The ball rolled through the big sticks, and the crowd went quiet, wondering what the result was. The goal umpire provided the answer. One point. Another rush behind, and still Richmond held the lead. But a goal would get Carlton back in front. The ball was moved back to Carlton's forward line. Corey Clover took a mark tied up against the boundary line. His centre and kick was marked by Richmond's Donald Don. The ball flew forward again, and this time Hugh James had a shot, but it was another behind. The Tigers were five points up and fifteen minutes to go. It was still anyone's game. Richmond attacked again, and this time Barney Herbert passed the ball to half forward flanker Norm Turnbull. He took his time and gold, giving the Tigers an eleven point lead. The Richmond supporters were yelling and the Carlton contingent were hoping that their boys could break this run from Richmond. Their hopes and prayers were answered when wingman Jack Stevenson got the ball all on his own. He took off at full speed, and his long shot brought a roar from the crowd when the umpire brought up both flags. The gap was four points, and the Blues made every effort to attack. Years later, the respected umpire Jack Elder recalled the game in an article in the Sporting Globe. He said, The Blues charged in, first from one flank, then another, in as terrific an onslaught as any bunch of defenders has weathered. Hislop, Thorpe and Jimmy Smith rolled back, wave after wave of Blue attackers. Never for a moment did the defence of Richmond falter. Their backs were hard up against the wall. It was intense football. An entire season had come down to these final few minutes and seconds. Another kick into the Carlton forward line towards half-forward flanker Alex Duncan. He was on his own, in the clear. Old boy in the Argus reported that 10,000 Carlton throats yelled, A mark! But then, from seemingly nowhere, the man that was given the big profile in the Herald in August, extolling his skills and contribution as a premier defender, appeared on the scene. He spoiled the mark, grabbed the ball and moved off at breakneck pace. What looked like it was going to be a set shot for goal had, thanks to Max Hislop, turned into another chase for the Carlton forwards. Hislop kicked the ball clear and the bell rang loudly across the ground. The Tigers were Premiers again. The top-of-the-table Blues had been defeated for a second week in a row. Richmond, 5 goals six thirty-six, to a gallant Carlton, 4 goals 8, 32. The crowd rushed onto the ground and cheered the players into the dressing rooms. Both Gordon Green, the Blues captain, and club secretary Reg Hunt went to the Richmond rooms and offered their congratulations to a team that had beaten them fairly. Richmond supporters left the MCG following the Richmond Juvenile Band, who had been playing at the ground. They marched towards the town hall, playing Richmond's on top, and entertained the crowds until a tea-time interlude, as told by the Richmond Guardian. After the evening meal, crowds returned to the town hall to await the players' convoy. After the game, players, officials and others went to St Kilda in a convoy of cars with the leading vehicle decorated by a large tiger skin for a celebration dinner which was followed by a tour of the city before the convoy made its way back to the Richmond Town Hall before moving to the club rooms. Sunday morning saw more people gathering at Punt Road. After speeches and congratulations to the players, there was a goal-kicking competition between Hugh James and Barney Herbert. I suspect both might have been a bit hungover, but they were happy. Barney Herbert won with three goals from four shots. He also announced his retirement after a 13-year career. We should not forget the efforts of umpire McMurray, who was recognised as having a good game in trying circumstances, although some thought his decisions regarding holding the ball were somewhat perplexing. But that is something that could probably be said about any umpire at any game in any era. After the game, McMurray collapsed in the change rooms and it was some time before he was in a fit state to return home. A couple of perennial topics were picked up in the weeks after the grand final. Firstly, would the league add another club to move back to a 10-team competition? The usual candidates were mentioned. Footscray, Hawthorne, Brunswick, Williamstown and even North Melbourne. Although the club had temporarily ceased to exist during their attempted reverse merger takeover the answer will be no. Leander in the Herald also raised the concern with the format of the finals and the perception that the right of challenge could be seen by some as temptation to play the extra game for more money. While he made it clear that he was not supporting these rumours and it was clear that Carlton had tried the best to win their premiership in one game in the final not least because they had holiday arrangements booked to go to South Australia. But the fact was, in 10 seasons from 1912 to 1921, there had only been one year, 1918, that had not required a grand final game. It is understandable that rumours would circulate that the ladder-leading clubs were deliberately losing a game to get the revenue from an extra match. Letters were written, some supporting the idea that the premiership should go to the club that finished on top of the ladder, but there would be no change in the coming season. Donald Don would have to face up to the tribunal for his part in the incident in the first quarter of the final. On November 3rd, he was suspended for the first eight weeks of the 1922 season, but he had been able to play in the grand final, which may not have pleased Carlton supporters. So that was the 1921 season, where Richmond had their second premiership. 1922 would still see only nine teams competing in the VFL, but Essendon will at last be playing in the suburb of their name. Join me next time to see how the 26th season will unfold. And as to when that next time will be, I have to apologise now to those of you who are listening in real time to these episodes. I have been able to get them out every three or four weeks or so, but I have another project to complete, and we are coming up to the Christmas New Year break which will also be an interruption to research and writing. So I can say that there will be a next time, but it will be a bit longer than the usual gap between episodes. Until then, thanks for listening. All the best for Christmas and New Year, if that's when you're listening to this episode, and I will be back before the next football season starts. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or you want to leave me feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History.